This podcast episode is sponsored by Statera. Statera is a web-based application that helps youth athletes and their stakeholders estimate training load, track maturation status, monitor readiness, and manage injury. Put together by coaches working with busy youth athletes, Statera helps keep things simple and brings together the most important training information in one place to ensure that effective athlete-centered decisions can be made. No more complicated Excel tutorials and spreadsheets, just upload your athletes' data and their training schedule and start to take control of their training commitments and workload. Make more informed decisions and protect your athletes' well-being, supporting their performance. Statera takes your data very seriously. GDPR compliant and registered with the ICO, choose from a range of maturation indices and validated measures or customize your own. Statera can record any training variable and all your data is fully exportable. To reach out today and get a free walkthrough, head over to www.statera.uk. That's S-T-A-T-E-R-A dot U-K. Welcome to the LTAD Network Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Anderson, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Mike Young. Mike is a nationally recognized researcher, coach, and educator. His depth of knowledge and experience in the field of athletic development is evidenced by his stays at all three U.S. Olympic training centers. As an athlete in Lake Placid, a sports scientist in Colorado Springs and Chula Vista, and as a coach in Colorado Springs. Mike has an undergraduate degree in exercise physiology, an MS in athletic administration, and a PhD in biomechanics. He has earned the NSCA Certified Strength Conditioning Specialist, is recognized by USA Weightlifting as a club and advanced sport performance coach, a CrossFit Level 1 Certified Trainer, and is one of less than 20 USA track and field Level 3 coaches in the country, and has a USATF Level 2 certification in three event areas. Mike has served as a primary coach for national and international team qualifiers in athletics, as well as bobsleigh, skeleton, and weightlifting. In track and field, he's coached or assisted multiple Olympians, national champions, masters national and world champions, and collegiate national champions. Additionally, he has served as the SNC coach for professionals in the NFL, MLB, and MLS. He served as a fitness coach for the Vancouver Whitecaps and the Carolina Railhawks. Previously, Mike coached athletics at the NCAA level at four universities, most notably coaching four years at LSU, where the team won six national championships. Mike is equally qualified as a sports scientist and coach educator. His research on sprinting, stretching, balance, and throwing activities have been published and presented in regional, national, and international journals and conferences. And he is an invited editor for the Journal of Sports Sciences and Sports Biomechanics. So welcome to the podcast, Mike. Good to catch up again. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on, Rob. I guess it uh, feels a little odd being on since we've joined uh, joined forces. I appreciate you you kind of bringing your podcast expertise to LTAD Network, and feels a little bit odd being on being on our own uh, podcast. But thank you for uh, the invite. <laughs> Not a problem. Well, obviously, as you mentioned um, in the first episode of this this season, I had yourself and James on to kind of discuss you know, exactly that, joining forces. So if people are interested in learning a bit more about your background and haven't come across you, then yeah, feel free to head back to the, the first episode of season four to kind of get your own individual take on your own journey, etc. cetera. Um, but what we wanted to do with this particular podcast is kind of, you know, capture and conclude the series we've, we've had discussing the different forms of strength. So obviously we had Dr. Dan Baker talking about um, long-term strength and power development from a concentric perspective. Boo Shek Snader talking about 
you know, elastic strength or plyometric um, kind of training in that isometric element, if you like. And then Dr. John Wagle talking about the eccentric. So what we wanted to do is get a kind of coach's uh, perspective on how they implement those various uh, kind of strength qualities across the season or an annual plan and what that looks like. So we really wanted to use you because I know it's something you've um, spoken about before. And, you know, obviously having that applied expertise is, is really great for people to be able to put the theory into practice. So for you, how do you think about organizing the training of those different strength qualities across an annual plan? Well, that tends to be something that I uh, really hone in on. I'd say it's one of the key uh, physical adaptation characteristics that drive uh, my training philosophy is the type of contraction that we're looking at, whether it's uh, isometric, concentric, or eccentric. And uh, then I think you can really dive into that even to a greater extent by looking at things like speed of contraction, the rate of force development, the uh, degree of tension created, the amount of elasticity and that those kinds of features, the, the, the way that the load is experienced, whether it's a, a sudden kind of shock onset or something that is a little bit more grinding in nature. So all of those things are, are really underpinning a lot of what I uh, make up my training philosophy. And I try to have a progression that gets us from point A to point B uh, over the course of an athlete's career starting off when they're very early on. And then even when they're advanced, we see the same types of progressions just shifted a little bit in terms of what we might see in an annual plan to get them from, say, a general prep period to uh, the final peaking stages of a more advanced, experienced athlete. Mm. So, I mean, there's obviously a lot of different methods that, that people talk about. So, you, you know, Cal Dietz, for example, uses a very kind of block you know we're having an eccentric block an isometric block a concentric block then you've got other coaches who maybe you know put it even within a mesocycle cycle that maybe have a concentric day your isometric day your eccentric day what's your thought process i mean do you subscribe to either one of them or is it context dependent between going between the two well it's uh, a little more complex i'd say than that um if if i were to simplify it a little bit it would be a probably a little bit more conjugated uh as the as the term is sometimes thrown about as then more blocked uh, methodology. There's a progression over the course of time where you see that the emphasis shifts, but there's never one phase, say, that is completely devoted to just one of the different contractile types or velocities. Um, I There is a good bit of evidence for block training for very simplistic physical adaptations, but with the activities that I deal with, even in the sport of track and field, when I'm dealing with speed and power athletes, their adaptations are not very simplistic. When I refer to something like a simplistic adaptation, I'd be talking about someone like, say, a power lifter, where they really just have one overwhelmingly predominant physical capacity strength, or say a bobsledder, even where they have a, a very predominant uh, biomotor physical capacity like power um, but it, maybe that's even true for activities like for weightlifting or uh, say volleyball but in sports like track and field even in something that looks like there's this uh, relatively dominant physical capacity like say speed 
even in even there, we look at that and we say, well, speed, clearly strength plays an important role in acceleration and clearly elasticity and power play an important role in transition phase through max velocity. And then there's even a strong endurance component, even in races as short as 100 meters, where athletes are decelerating over 30 or 40 meters. So even in these really simple, quote unquote, activities in track and field, it's not nearly as simple as you'd see in other sports. And I've somewhat specialized in the past, say, two or three years uh, in the in the decathlon and the heptathlon. And I've had quite a bit of success coaching these multi-event athletes. And that's really the, the jack of all trades of athletics because they need to have stamina to go two days, uh, 10 events over two days, which is a tremendous amount of work capacity. They need to have the aerobic capacity to run a relatively good 1500 meters or metric mile. But then they have these other speed and power oriented events, 100 meters, 110 meter hurdles, long jump, high jump, et cetera, all these th three different throwing events. And they have this a metabolically demanding event that straddles between uh, an aerobic demand, a metabolic demand, and a speed demand. So you literally have to have a very balanced biomotor or physical capacity development. So it's never going to be a case even there where one is going to be completely dominant. However, I do have a progression that I like to get to uh, for enhancing kind of the, the speed, uh, speed power related qualities, which I think are underpinned by really high eccentric force generating capacity. And if you don't have that, you're just simply not going to be very successful in these really explosive activities. And to a lesser extent, that also holds true for most team sports, you know, like uh, the other sport I work a, a lot in right now is uh, soccer, football. And, you know, that's kind of of all team sports, that's probably the most balanced demand, physical demand of everything, you know, you can't be Herculean strong and expect to be able to play a match for 90 minutes. Likewise, you can't just build up and become a marathon aerobic capacity and not have tremendous speed. So they're the two activities that I have kind of worked in the most over the past, say, five or 10 years is soccer, football and uh, multi events in track and field. And they are kind of this balanced mix of different physical qualities or biomotor abilities, however you may call it. So there's very few sports that are super, super simple in terms of their physical development. I know a lot of SNC coaches like to really simplify things. And uh, I think there's value in that, especially for beginner coaches. But I also think there's uh, a little bit of a, an issue. It can be problematic if you oversimplify things too much because the sporting world is just not that simple. It can help to understand things and create nice, neat boxes for organizational patterns and so forth. But the reality is that no contraction type is ever taken away from another contraction type with very few exceptions in sport, like perhaps the initial starting block clearance on a swim start or the initial pull uh, in weightlifting, those are obviously very concentric dominant, but even then we very quickly move into some form of eccentric loading, or there is some isometric component to it. So I don't ever look at it like, okay, we're just training one element and then we move to the next, and then we move to the next. It's more of a shift, uh, along this continuum where we're focusing on one, as I see it as a 
precursor or a prerequisite, so to speak, for subsequent phases. It's somewhat like the idea of phase potentiation in generalized periodization, where we can train one element. And although that may not be the most important element for sporting success, the development of that earlier quality is necessary to maximize the development of subsequent physical capacities. So uh, we're never fully going to devote all our time to one physical capacity. It will just be a shift in progression. Even in the tapering periods, we may still focus on, um, we may still address concentric capacities. It just would be to a lesser extent than what we might see earlier on in the year. Hmm. No, I think it's a really good description. It's something that I've been contemplating and mulling over the last few months is uh, having come across maybe what might be classified as very old school strength conditioning coaches who, you know, just kind of say, I'll oh, just get strong. You know, all your problems will go away if you get strong. And I think that's a very simplistic kind of model to think, well, concentric strength isn't the answer to everything. And I, as I've kind of unpicked this, I've thought, well, actually, when these people were operating, it was probably at a time when sport was a lower level and actually, you know, if your opposite opposition team wasn't doing squat, bench, deadlift, chin, you probably had a lot to gain from doing that. But now everyone's doing that. Actually, that, you know, concentric 1RMs are the differentiator because we're all fairly strong. It's now right. actually maybe better things. Maybe is, like you said, eccentric force generation or the ability to, you know, reorient that strength to absorb it and push it away as quickly as we can. And I think sometimes we have that hangover of perhaps just 1RM concentric strength. Do you think this, the same thing that perhaps we overemphasize that sometimes? Yeah, but I, I, I take a very balanced viewpoint on that because it's almost become trendy to, you know, to take a little bit of a, a shit on uh, concentric strength development and basic barbell strength. And I think it's unwarranted. It's almost become trendy to just get away from it altogether. And, uh, you know, I would relish the opportunity to compete for have my athletes compete against those who do that because the research evidence is very clear uh, in terms of strength development that strength is going to have a massive impact on performance up to a reasonably high level, you know, 2.2 to 2.2 times body weight back squat, for example, is kind of the sweet spot that I look for. Most of my athletes are above that, but once we get to that point, we've kind of taken our foot off the gas a little bit. We're, but up until that point, we're still seeing pretty significant impact on practically all athletic qualities, you know, early phase acceleration, jumping ability, change of direction ability, resilience, uh, resistance to injuries. So, you know, people will, you'll see people make this shift to kind of more quote unquote neuromuscular activities or specific activities. And you watch them in the gym and they can barely squat one times body weight. And I think that's premature. I think there is a need to get relatively strong. Uh, and the nice thing is about it, about it is that you don't really, it doesn't take a lot to get to that 1.5 times body weight squat. You know, you can practically get anyone to 1.5 times body weight squat. In my training facility, we have about uh, 200, no, 300 general fitness population, just fitness enthusiasts that come train with us, most of whom are uh, not from a massive physical background or culture. They're not athletic. And almost all of them after a year, year and a half are squatting one and a half times body weight or more uh, with just our regular training. 
you know, so this is not some magic number that is super hard to attain. Um, and it's, again, it's not even a magic number. If you like the let back, you know, the front squat, I'm sure there's an equivalent number there, the deadlift or whatever, but it, it, it represents a level of strength that is probably necessary for you to get the most out of the qualities that uh, we really want to get to. You know, I think the, so the thing, the thing that is, the things that are most important when you're weak and when you're early in your development are not going to be really important to you or as important to you when you are later in your development. But at the same time, we don't want to be premature in taking our foot off the gas, developing those early physical qualities that are so important to later development. They're foundational, I think. So I think I take a very pragmatic and balanced approach to it is that we still get people very strong in basic barbell activities before we feel like there's a dramatic need to change. Now, I have primarily uh, begun working with uh, almost exclusively with elites in the past, say, three years. Um, up until that point, I would work with a lot of developmental and adolescent athletes. And if uh, I had to go back or I had to make a recommendation, I wouldn't change anything. Uh, early on, we would still focus on basic barbell strength or strength and conditioning, so to speak, in that uh, adolescent age, that uh, late, late phase uh, development, because I think the, the benefits are so tremendous in terms of those basic qualities of early phase acceleration, jumping ability, change of direction and resilience. And then once we have established those levels, then we can start to move around. You know, if you start to look at the research from Mike Stone and Greg Half and Robert Newton and things like this, guys who are have looked at this uh, extensively, the evidence is pretty clear that if you get strong, if you take someone who is weak or untrained, relatively untrained, and you get them strong, they will improve power and speed related qualities, perhaps to a greater extent than if you just focused on speed related qualities and power before they were strong. So it's one of these very rare circumstances where what is seemingly non-specific training will have a greater impact than the specific training. Now, once we get to that level, and let's just for the sake of example, say 1.5 times body weight squat, that's where I might start to think, okay, we need to start shifting away from, and again, it's not a wholesale change, it's just a gradual shift, and maybe not even a shift, it may be integration of more power development there. Um, once we're out to two times body weight squat, now I'm probably saying, okay, we need this as a physical stimulus. We need to maintain this quality, but we can start to emphasize other qualities because we have reached the point of diminishing returns when it comes to uh, strength development and its impact, traditional strength development, that is, and its impact on sport performance or speed and power. So, you know, I, even in my track and field group where we're tremendously strong athletes uh, to the average of the group of uh, 11 males that I have right now is 2.25, uh, no, 2.35 times body weight squat. That's 11 guys squatting that. So they're all well above and one guy is skewed all the way up to three times body weight squat. So he brings up the average a little bit, but there's no one below Two, two point body weight squat, the average of 11 guys, 2.35. These are not strength athletes. These are full squats, uh, 
hip crease below parallel, no belt, just squat shoes, no knee wraps, a true one RM. So we've got all these guys at this uh, above the, the line, the threshold, so to speak, of what I would say is kind of where we're not going to see too many more gains by adding extra strength, but we still squat heavy uh, pretty much year round. The goal there, though, isn't that we make them stronger. It's that there is a benefit uh, to tissue resilience and in terms of physical capacity that we want to at least maintain it. So we're maintaining it and we're getting the stimulus. And maybe now instead of doing heavier squats uh, twice a week, maybe now we're doing them once every 10 days. And that's all it takes to kind of maintain things. And maybe towards the end of the season, when we need to unload a little bit, perhaps we do a different kind of squat, maybe something like a flywheel squat or a jump squat or something to that effect, and only very minimally load these heavier concentric based activities. So it's, I, I don't tend to look at things in terms of a black and white or making wholesale changes. I tend to look at things in, in terms of a gradual shift along a continuum. And what is correct early on in that continuum or beneficial may not be the same thing as what's correct or beneficial later on in the continuum. Uh, so it's not that this one thing is right or wrong. It needs context early on, get kids really strong. If you can, you're going to see tremendous benefits to it. But later on, when someone is physically developed and they've already reached a relatively high level of strength, then continuing to add strength in most activities is not going to be of much benefit. So um, it's a, it's kind of nuanced. I, I don't, a lot of the very simplistic ways of looking at things are effective ways of understanding the concept, but I think it's important for an SNC coach that's going to work in sport to understand that there's tremendous, there should be tremendous overlap of these physical qualities. Uh, at no point in time do we, you know, you simply can't decouple a concentric and eccentric component, even if you really wanted to, even if you just sat on a box and, uh, you know, stand up after a prolonged hold, you're still going to rock forward and get some level of eccentric loading. So these, these physical qualities do not decouple very easily. Um, and while there's certainly times when I will emphasize one over the other, it's, it's never a thing where we train one to the complete neglect of another. Yeah, that makes total sense. I think it's very similar to, you know, when you get maybe a perhaps uninformed kind of technical sport coach who says, oh, we need to do sport specific things with this group of very beginner athletes. And it's a bit like, well, actually, yeah, at a certain point down the line where we've got the bang from our buck out of the more general stuff. But if we go to that now, actually, we've, we're leaving loads of, of, you know, easy improvements on the table by just getting them moving generally well. And I guess the same is true of that strength quality. We can get a lot of bang for our buck from getting concentrically strong before we need to, you know, squeeze that next piece out of the, the next part in the continuum. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, um, you know, with the sports specificity thing is a, is a great example. And, you know, it's the, the one that I'll always counter by saying, like, imagine if you had your, your soccer player, your basketball player, what have you, and um, you only had them one day a week or two days a week, which is what we as S&C coaches frequently see them. And in our world, they're basically novices, right? A lot of times in team sports and uh, if you went to your, your sport coach and you said, Hey, you have this person one or two times a week. And, uh, what would you do? And they're a novice. 
you're not going to do the same thing that Ronaldo would do or what Steph Curry would do. You would show them how to hold a ball or to strike a ball or to uh, that you would focus on the very basic things. And the very basic things are things like let's move well, whether that's with your body weight or a barbell. And then we can expand on that. So you have to have the, the basics done really well before you move on. And especially in team sports, the reality is that most of the athletes that you're going to see are pretty much novices when it comes to the gym and their physical development. Now, there's certainly exceptions to that, but I work in the sport of track and field where I have the luxury of training athletes for 12 months of the year sometimes and six days a week and three hours a day. I can get someone to a pretty high level of physical capacity in short order because the exposure to the training that we're doing is quite high in team sports. You get these guys. And, you know, in terms of what we do, I see these guys for 10 minutes of warm up a day, two gym sessions a week, uh, some preseason conditioning, maybe a little bit more weight sessions in the off season. They're training less than your, your bloke down at the, the fitness center, you know, in terms of just the purely physical metrics. They're doing their sport a lot, but in terms of the stuff that we oftentimes concern ourselves with, they're basically, uh, you know, a fitness, <laughs> fitness level of exposure. They're not like super high level of, of, of uh, fitness training, especially when it comes to the gym. So it's really interesting how people sometimes like to go to these really advanced methodologies and it just simply isn't necessary. One of the things that I uh, we'll say, and I probably should stop saying it because it's just terrible as an American to say it is that you just shouldn't, you don't, you shouldn't shoot a bullet when you don't need to. Right. And, uh, it's, this is, it's kind of become culturally un insensitive, I think, and stupid to say, given the, the state of our country now, but it's like, if something very simple works, don't go to something very advanced, right? Use the simplest tool that you have available to you that will be effective. Cause if you skip two or three, and you go to the thing that's really, really advanced or really unnecessary, that is your tool of last resort, well, what do you go to next? You know, if I, why am I going to take my adolescent kid and drop him off a six foot box to work on eccentric loading when I could just teach him how to do a body weight squat and get probably the same, same outcomes. And then there's a place for me to progress, you know, so it is really uh, important to see like, what is important? what is relevant and beneficial at the lowest threshold for these early stages of development and what is important to maximize development when all these other things are in place. Uh, and if you do that sequence out of order, whether it's on the annual plan or through the long-term athletic de development plan, then I think you have nowhere to go we're looking for progression over the course of an athlete's lifetime over the course of the season. And if you get to the end, so to speak, before you've ever done what's necessary at the start, then there's nowhere to go. You know, you, you go to a 12 foot box drop, you know, it's ridiculous. So do the things that are really simple and fundamental first, and then move to the things that are more advanced later. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it's the thing is when you when you take it into a different sphere, it makes so much sense. You don't keep teach kids in first grade algebra because they got no concept of counting and multiplication. You know, it's a waste of time, and you realize you're going to get pretty limited in your progression to learning algebra. Yeah. But for some reason, you know, it's the exercises that are sexy on Instagram, 
you know, we've got bands and chains or we've got, you know, a gym aware out and that's going to get the likes. Whereas actually that kid would get more benefit just, you know, doing three sets of 10 back squats and learning their body shape. And, right. You know, hitting those key positions and building basic levels of strength, but that's not as exciting and sexy. So people are more likely to jump forward to those specialized right. methods. So right. in terms of, so let's say we have got someone who's built, you know, that solid base, that two or 2.2 times body weight back squat for, as an example, and is, you know, warrants that next level of, okay, we're going to expand our, our repertoire a bit and look at some more specific strength methods for isometrics or eccentrics. What's your thought process around um, how we develop that eccentric strength or how we develop that isometric strength? Yeah. So once we get to around, let's say uh, 1.5 times back squat, uh, that level of strength, then I'm starting to incorporate other methods. I'm not waiting until we get to 2.2 times body weight uh, back squat. I'm uh, starting to incorporate things much earlier than that. And certainly a little bit earlier still, if it were a uh, female. Um, I'm gonna start to incorporate things like uh, volitional pauses or uh, isometrics where the person could overcome it if they needed to, uh, where we're, we're, we're pausing effectively uh, at various stages of the movement. I'll incorporate those. And really those can be incorporated anytime because those are effectively sub-maximal concentrics, right? If I'm pausing with at, at a motion, I'm using a load that actually is lower than my concentric strength. And those could actually be incorporated at any point in time. Similarly with tempo type training, where we perhaps descend on the eccentric and a slow, uh, slow descent, somewhere in the range of three to five seconds, those could be incorporated at any points in time. So I'll start to incorporate them at around 1.5 times body weight squat level. So I don't have a hard cutoff, but once someone is around that level, you know, around a year of training, I think it's appropriate, um, maybe not necessary, but it's appropriate to integrate things like that. A tempo-based activity, a volitional pauses, those are not going to throw off your progression in terms of intensity. We're already using loads that are probably similar or greater than that already. Uh, we're actually, the only way you're increasing the intensity of the exercise there is just by putting in these different contraction types. Um, so those would get incorporated relatively soon. And then what I'd start to do is incorporate, uh, I'd ramp that level up to the point where we're doing isometrics at uh, close to maximal intensity. So we're getting to uh, overcoming isometrics where we're trying to push against an immovable object. Uh, I think those, those are very safe to incorporate relatively early. There's some evidence to suggest that you get some, uh, some neural adaptations there that you might not otherwise get. And then taking our progression of, uh, isometric, or excuse me, eccentric, uh, yielding eccentrics to where we're getting up to that 85 to 90% range of the person's one RM. Now that's going to gradually shift up until the point to where we get to uh, overloaded eccentrics. And anytime we start to do eccentrics where the load exceeds 100% of our concentric maximum, we are in what I'd call an accentuated eccentric load. And that's kind of where we start to shift um, toward, the, toward these more advanced eccentrics. Uh, 
Now, all the while, I'm incorporating some level of plyometrics, of course, that would certainly introduce a more elastic form of overloaded eccentrics, like basic sprinting, basic plyometrics uh, above things like baby bounding and remedial jumping activities are going to introduce an eccentric overload that's going to force an amortization. So we're already introducing it for sure uh, in our training. And certainly any kid that goes to the playground has experienced uh, eccentric loading anytime they jump off of a, a high, a high uh, drop. So this isn't something that we need to really hold back from. It's just we need to be careful with the really ex intensive plyometric type work where we get these massive eccentric overloads. So I'm, I'm getting the tissue ready for those really advanced eccentric overloads by doing it in a more controlled setting in the weight room, taking it from the submaximal isometric work, the submaximal uh, eccentric work, gradually pushing that up towards the 90-ish percent of 1RM. And that's right around the threshold of, I think, where you're going to start to see uh, an appropriate stimulus for eccentric development, uh, uh, eccentric power development, even, from, even, we're, even though we're not using accentuated eccentric loading. And then we start, we gradually transition over that threshold of 100% into the accentuated eccentric loading. Now, I like to kind of break this down in terms of the roughly the percentages used here, right? So we we understand that eccentric loading in eccentric capacity, we are at least 15% stronger than we are concentrically. So uh, that means if we were to take the basic, most conservative understanding of concentric strength development, and we say that in a trained athlete that we typically would use load somewhere in the range of 80 to 85% as our minimum thresholds for development of maximal concentric strength. Well, 80 to 85% load concentrically represents only about 70 to 75% load eccentrically. So we're, when we use those 80 to 85% loads that are representative of our one R, concentric 1RM, it's really at 70 to 75% of our most conservative estimate of our eccentric 1RM, uh, if there is such a thing. And really, that's the absolutely most conservative way to think of it because eccentrically, we typically only operate in very powerful ranges of motion. So near extension, where our capacities are actually gonna be significantly higher. So for example, what concentric 1RM represents is our ability to overcome a load in our weakest range of motion with our weakest contraction type. So even though we think of 1RM as this uh, metric of maximal strength, it's actually a metric of weakest range of motion, weakest contraction type. Uh, so it's, it's not the best metric to use for athletic development. Now that said, it's very simple to understand and it certainly has a role in terms of overall uh, long-term athletic development and establishing the kind of criterion that we talked about earlier. But once we get up until these kind of baseline measures of say two times body weight squat, now we need to look at other measures and it, they're not as simple. And I know people love simple, but it's 
sometimes we have to look outside of simple if you really want to get to the to the uh, most what is most effective uh, and most appropriate. And eccentrically, if you don't have the tools to measure it, like say uh, a flywheel device with it, a, a uh, or force platforms, or uh, you know even some of the VBT devices, then you, you can just go off of the most conservative estimates, which are 15%, 15% stronger eccentrically than we are concentrically. And then you do the backwards math. That means that uh, you know, you're 85% load. We're not at stimulus threshold for eccentric power for a more advanced athlete. Once we get to 90 to 95% concentric load on the bar, now we're in stimulus threshold for eccentric capacity development. But most people don't like to train at 90 to 95% concentric max because you're going to fail half the time in the context of a training program. So how do we, how do we kind of bridge this gap here? Well, that's where you have to get into the accentuated eccentric loading. You have to get into the faster eccentrics. You have to get into the plyometrics. And it all has to kind of tie in together and be integrated with all of your training, whether that's change of direction, speed work, plyometric work. And I'm, I'm a huge proponent of making our training compatible and complementary. So the weight room is not separate from the uh, speed work. It's not separate from the plyometrics. They all are imposing a demand uh, that is telling the body to adapt to some form of uh, physical stimulus. And we want to send the clearest signal possible to make sure that we get the best adaptation, the most desirable adaptation possible. So that's making sure that our signal, so to speak, is what we're trying to send rather than uh, if we want someone to be very elastic, that there's a, there's a signal to send to make sure that that's the subsequent adaptation. So what does that look like in practice in terms of, you know, you, you, you could foresee the, the opposite, you know, if you did a very, I don't know, let's say a very um, elastic kind of plyometric session, and then you went in and did really heavy grinding concentric reps, you could see those two mismatch. But what would that look like for you within a session of trying to keep that signal very clear for the adaptation we're trying to chase, you know, on the track, for example, versus under a barbell? What, what would that look like? Sure. So uh, I'll, I'll talk about my track and field guys because it's easiest to see there and they have the most advanced implementation of this. Um, on Mondays, we pair early phase acceleration work. So this would be uh, acceleration work out to say 30 meters. And I follow a short to long program over the course of the year. And then on uh, we would pair early phase acceleration work with what I'd call uh, short jumps, not short in that they're jumping short, but short in the nature of the jump. There's not a huge eccentric component to it. They tend to be starting with very minimal velocities, things like standing log jumps, standing triple jumps, uh, standing vertical jumps, that kind of thing. Uh, they're much less reflexive in nature. They have a greater concentric uh, demand on them. And then pairing that in the weight room with things that are more concentric in nature. So for example, uh, Olympic lifts, perhaps early on in the season, we may just focus on uh, pulls. So there's not even, we're not taking out the eccentric component, but we're uh, 
focusing on the concentric component. So we may just do heavy pulls, like a clean pull or a snatch pull or something like that, typically a clean pull. And then uh, heavier squats, working up to that 85, 90%, sometimes perhaps even doing them from pins, from full ranges, uh, and traditional posterior chain work, RDLs, that kind of thing. Uh, on early on in the season, I may do something similar to that basic template as much as three times a week. Now, as the season progresses, that the second session will oftentimes turn into a more elastic and eccentrically focused session. But as a whole, all three of my speed power sessions may shift along the force velocity continuum a little bit. Um, and we could look at any one of these different methods that I'm talking, means that I'm talking about and kind of show you, I'll show you how that might work. But so the Wednesday session, the day two might turn into max velocity sprinting. So we'd see some exposure for 20 or so meters in a given rep, uh, where the athlete is at top speed. And then we pair it with more elastically dominant, uh, eccentric loading type plyometrics, things that have a very high stiffness demand, or perhaps a huge shock loading. There's a couple different options at play there. Perhaps we're moving very fast, the not jumping as high perhaps, but, uh, getting an eccentric overload in the plyometrics, very short amortizations, very short ground contact times, striking that balance between force production and the time in which we have to do it. And then in the weight room, perhaps we're shifting the focus again to uh, maybe accentuated eccentric loading, maybe some shock loading, something I've been including in the weight room uh, quite a bit over the past couple of years where we actually introduce almost a plyometric effect in the weight room by imposing the load on the individual very rapidly. So typically in the weight room, the imposition of the load is, uh, is sustained, right? We do a squat and the barbell remains on our back the whole time, whether I'm going down or going up. And there's never one moment where I am unloaded and then I'm all of a sudden rapidly loaded. Well, in sport, that's actually what happens. I'm unloaded, unloaded in flight perhaps, uh, unloaded prior to a ground contact, unloaded before, before someone hits me. And then all of a sudden I'm very rapidly loaded. So it, one thing I've been trying to do in the weight room over the past couple of years is how can I shock load a little bit in the weight room and, you know, cleans in some, to some extent provide a very uh, safe way to do that, right? We catch the clean and there's the barbell will descend you know, five to 10 centimeters. And I have to kind of prepare myself for the shock of this barbell landing on me. But that's really the only place you see it in most traditional weight room programs. Well, uh, I've started to do other things like, you know, dropping barbells and catching them at, at varying points of mechanical disadvantage or letting the, letting, uh, a weight free fall or using a flywheel device and include, including slack in the flywheel so that I drive through the concentric phase. I'm unloaded for a very brief moment. And then all of a sudden that flywheel hits me and I'm just smashed down. So there are ways you can impose 
shock loading even in the weight room. And I think just in some cases, it's actually safer and easier to control and quantify than it is in say plyometrics or sprinting. And it matches up well there. Now, just to go back to something I was saying earlier, where even though I, even though we'll see these shifts over time from in the days, the shift actually, the shift occurs in all elements of the training. So for example, on a Monday, uh, early on in the season for my track and field athletes, we may do early phase acceleration sprinting, which may be as short as 10 to 15 meters. And we may do resisted runs, for example, that's just really ramping up the concentric demand of the, of the activity, you know, the resisted part of it is primarily impacting the uh, concentric phase of touchdown or concentric phase of the push. And we would keep the reps short where the concentric demand is much higher. And then we go to the jumps and our, our activities may be almost exclusively concentric in nature, perhaps a standing long jump onto a, a pit or a standing uh, vertical jump into onto a box. Uh, or maybe gradually starting including things like standing triple jumps. Um, and then we go to the weight room and our Olympic lift for the day may be a clean pull. It's almost exclusively concentric. It's actually higher or further on the force velocity curve to the, to, towards the middle because we're able to use a higher load in a clean pull than we could use on a, on a power clean. So we could get up to as much as 115%. And we would do squats, full range, perhaps working up to 85, 90%, and say a traditional RDL. Well, if we advance that forward, let's say five months, now our acceleration work is no longer resisted. Perhaps our acceleration work is uh, just early phase acceleration, or excuse me, mid phase acceleration. So now we're doing uh, perhaps runs out to 30 or 40 meters. So as the run progresses, the eccentric demand goes up. And the, and if I've taken the resistance off, the concentric demand goes down a little bit. So we're shifting there, even though it's still a, a concentrically focused day, so to speak, in the grand scheme of the week, I've shifted things there. And then in terms of plyometrics, maybe instead of doing all standing long jumps and standing vertical jumps, and almost eliminating the uh, eccentric loading or landing. Now maybe we're doing bounding activities, short bounds. So for example, a standing triple jump or what we might call a double, double, right, right, left, left. And then, uh, so there's more eccentric loading. There's more, uh, more of a rhythmic elastic nature to it, but it's not super, super stiff. And then we go to the weight room and what was a clean pull at 115% of our power clean max is perhaps now power cleans at 85 to 90% max. And in the power clean, I'm comfortable using these really high loads on these days because we know that power in a movement that is very fast inherently fast, like say an Olympic lift is best developed in that say 75 to 85% range. And then our squats where we were doing uh, 85 to 90% on the bar uh, six months prior, perhaps now we just use 80% and we pull out our push bands and we do VBT and we just say, okay, I want you to do three reps and three reps at 85% and let's move this bar as fast as possible. 
So 85%, they could do six reps if they really needed to, but we do just three, a couple sets of three, and we move it as fast as possible. And perhaps instead of RDLs, maybe now we start to incorporate some ease, uh, controlled eccentric loading even into our posterior chain work. So even within a day over the course of the year, we'd see, still see some shifts. And then if I were to take that forward another six months to where we're perhaps tapering for uh, our major competition of the year, now that's going to shift again. So the progression with, within the context of a week, a day may stay the same, but there will be gradual shifts over the course of the annual plan. And then even within, say, a long-term athletic development plan, you should see shifts uh, moving more and more to this uh, advanced loading patterns, higher eccentric demand, higher elasticity, that kind of thing. And I think you've given some really fantastic examples there, you know, just discussing the, the evolution of that session. And, you know, it's kind of triggering thoughts for me, just thinking the way you've described that, we've kind of gone from, you know, your, your initial exercise tends to be your body weight propulsion in some capacity, but the, the speed of the movement is almost slowing down as we're getting through the session. We're focusing more on that strength. So as you've described around, we're kind of starting to shift from the beginning of the session to the end of the session down that force velocity curve. So we're working on a different part of the curve, which you sure. know, that makes perfect sense. There's a, yeah, some really great examples there and, and some real practical applications. So you mentioned a few times already a couple of um, pieces of kit. So you know, K-Box is something you've used a lot and I've seen, you know, some of your clips on social media, even discussing, you know, how you could add some of that extra eccentric by you kind of helping pull them up um, in that concentric before they, they, they get overloaded. Are there any other kind of um, gadgets that you use? You've obviously mentioned some VBT devices. Is there anything else that you, you look to incorporate at that higher end? Yeah, we use a couple different, so we have methods that we will use uh, to, to enhance the eccentric loading. Uh, this could be, plyometrics from a box, say, and, and I'm not just speaking of, say, depth drops, but we will bound from boxes sometimes to accentuate the vertical displacement on landing. You accentuate the vertical displacement, the loading goes up significantly. So that's something I'll do with my very, very advanced athletes. We actually bound from a box to the flat ground back up to a box. Had some of my elite track and field jumpers do that. Um, everyone has access to a box, but that's not something that most people should do unless they want to break their kneecap or their, their, uh, <laughs> rupture their Achilles tendon. We take a long time to progress to these more advanced things. And then, you know, in, in the, um, in sprint work, I don't think there's any real need to do advanced, uh, to, to overload a little bit. However, if I did have access to a very controlled decline, like a 2%, 3% grade, I would certainly include it. Uh, I don't have access to any of the pulley devices that are sometimes incorporated in, uh, for sprint training, some of the more advanced pulley devices, but I would certainly include those if I did have access to them. Um, I would be very careful to do manual resistance pulley just because I think you're on a razor's edge already and you don't want to, there's going to be so much variability between me pulling and you pulling and, uh, you know, what, what that person is already capable of that I don't think that we, we would really want to play around with that. But with some of the more advanced methodologies that allow some uh, quantified towing, I would consider using those. In the weight room, uh, as you said, I, I use the flywheel quite a bit. So it's perhaps one of the more uh, 
extensive outside of a barbell. I'd say that the, the our flywheel devices are perhaps our most important in terms of the development of these capacities. Now, the flywheel, I will say, is not uh, it's not it's not going to give you an automatic eccentric overload. Sometimes people think of flywheel and just naturally associate that with greater eccentric loading. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, but it can be if you integrate it well, and it can be more safely than you would with a barbell. Now, if you were to just go up there and you take a novice and you put them on the K box and do some squats, they're not going to achieve eccentric overload. I can assure you that Uh, it takes, there's a little bit of a learning skill to it. And uh, I've tested this with a K meter. Your average person is going to have a higher concentric output than they will at eccentric output. Now that said, you can get, you can do things on the, on the flywheel devices that you can't do with a barbell, at least not safely. So we use the flywheel. We'll do assisted concentrics, whether it's a person pushing you up or uh, pulling you up or manual assistance by you pushing down on an external object and then releasing your hands or releasing the partner assisted assistance on the eccentric so that you're just literally pulled through the ground. Uh, we call it the demon force because it feels like you're just being sucked through the ground. Um, so we use the flywheel a lot for those kinds of things. Uh, we do use VBT, however, not so much for eccentric loading, but more for like when we're shifting along the force velocity continuum. When I want to basically take my foot off the gas in terms of developing concentric strength and shifting concentric maximal strength development, that emphasis to concentric maximal power. Now I'll start to use VBT in the range of like 75 to 85% loads, attempting to move it as fast as possible. Uh, I use VBT for a lot of different things. I've been a huge proponent of it for a long time. I think it's a very, very effective tool that coaches can and should make use of. Um, And then we do have weight releasers as well. So we'll use weight releasers where we can overload the eccentric component. This is the old school method. Uh, Overloaded on the eccentric, perhaps up to as much as 125% on the bar of your concentric maximum. At the bottom of the lift, the weight releasers unload, and then you can stand up with a lesser load. So typically my prescription for that might be something like barbell plus weight releasers equals 120% uh, load on the bar relative to your concentric maximum. And then the barbell itself, when the weight releasers come off is somewhere in the range of 75 to 80%. So you can still stand up very fast. And oftentimes I might incorporate VBT with the weight releasers. And what you'll actually see is you get a potentiation. So if I were to do a squat with 85% on the bar and try to move it as fast as possible, I may achieve a, uh, a velocity of, you know, let's say one meter per second. And if I were to do that same 75% on the bar, but do my initial eccentric with an additional 40% on the bar. Now that concentric on my initial rep might be somewhere like 1.1 or 1.2 times uh, meters per second. So you get a potentiation from that greater eccentric loading on the first rep. And then we use a variety of different methodologies like uh, in that would enhance the eccentric loading, whether that's two up, one down, strong, weak, strong, to weak methodology where we do say a strong, stronger lift on the concentric phase and a weaker lift on the eccentric phase. 
perhaps say a deadlift on the way up and RDL on the way down or two up one down, which would be perhaps doing a squat with two, two legs on the way up, sticking one leg out in front of you while you descend with just one leg. So there's a handful of different methods that you can use, uh, some of which do necessitate some technology, some of which do not. A lot of times I, I will crisscross and incorporate multiple different technologies in together or more the different methods with the different technologies. And, um, you know, the, the goal is always the same, though, is how do we get to that uh, far left side of the force velocity continuum where we, where we are on fast eccentric loading and then to push even beyond what is on the typical force velocity continuum, how do we get to fast eccentric loading with, with a shock methodology where there's an imposition of load very, very quickly? Now, there's one, one method that I've seen that you didn't mention, which was a, a bit of the human catapult that you built, which I saw on social media yeah, <laughs> with your resistance. But talk us through what, what was happening there. Was that a bit of fun or was that a, that a training yeah, No, method? so we've, you know, it's funny is uh, I did that. It's a, it is a uh, invention out of necessity. So I work in North Carolina, which is considered the, the South in um, the US. We are relatively warm, but our winters get to 13 Celsius or so, 12 Celsius, 50, 50 degrees or so. That's our, so it's not, it's acceptable, but not really safe to do max velocity sprinting in, in when it's at its coldest um, outdoors. And my old facility, the old athletic lab had a straightaway that was 40 meters long. So, or maybe just slightly short of that 39 meters long. Well, a lot of the athletes that I work with are fast enough that they're not actually achieving maximal velocity in 40 meters. That's not long enough. So uh, if I just had them accelerate from a stand start, they would maybe be achieving maximal velocity by somewhere in between 35 and 45 meters. And then they would hold that for another 10, 10 or 20 meters. So that meant that if I wanted to train maximal velocity qualities, I either had to go outside where it was probably a little bit too cold and maybe a little bit unsafe to do it in, you know, we could certainly do it. I'm not going to complain. I lived in New York for 20 years and that's what we did there. Or I could figure out a way to get athletes to top speed in a very short period of time. And uh, I basically thought of this human catapult, the uh, speed rocket, so to speak, as we would call it, where we basically cheat the velocity phase. Now, a lot of people think of it as like overspeed, and it's not overspeed in the, in the framework of you're at no point are you actually running faster than you could run. You're just fast, you're accelerating faster, you're effectively cheating the acceleration phase. So what might normally take 35 or 45 meters to get to top speed, I can get athletes to top speed in 15 meters. So that meant that in my 39 meter straight straightaway facility, I could get athletes to top speed at 15 meters. And then we could still run at 20 meters of top speed in this straightaway that is only 39 meters. So it was a, uh, a tool built out of necessity, basically thinking of how, how could I possibly cheat this, cheat the acceleration phase. And it's very, very handy because there are days when we might want to focus on excel, uh, top speed, excuse me, we might want to focus on top speed, but top speed is an interesting one because 
you can't get to top speed in most cases without going through a very hard acceleration. And acceleration burns fuel. It burns both metabolic and uh, energetic fuel in terms of the, the nervous system fatigue. So if we, if we want to train top speed, typically you might have to run 40 meters at near maximal effort preceding that. Well, if I want to train, if I know that I need to train for 10 or 20 meters of top speed, uh, and I have to train, I have to sprint through 40 meters to get to that. Well, I can only do a limited number of reps of those 60 meter sprints, say, and only a third of my total volume is going to actually be training the thing that I am trying to train. But if I can somehow cheat the acceleration phase and shorten it and get someone up to top speed much quicker, then it can be very beneficial. You know, I, I can spend more of my total time and total volume focusing on this one physical quality. Um, you know, for those of you that have used like a high speed treadmill, they have their pros and cons. Uh, you know, it does certainly change mechanics a little bit. Uh, it certainly does change the ground reaction forces a little bit. There's, there's, uh, not so much that it's an altogether different task than flat ground sprinting, but it's, it is certainly uh, a consideration, but one of the benefits of high speed treadmill work is that you could just start at top speed. You know, it's, I don't know that it's super safe to do it, but I, I worked in an R&D center for a high speed, a company that were made high speed treadmills. These treadmills could go uh, 40, 50 kilometers an hour. I mean, they're faster than any human can run and you could put it at a 40 degree incline. And if you wanted to, you could set it at that velocity and then you just grab the rails and you start turning your legs and all of a sudden you hop on the thing and it's going at, you know, uh, 13, 14 meters per second, you're get thrown off the back if you don't try to keep up, but it's not really like, uh, you, you just, you skip the acceleration phase. And then one thing that you see in, uh, you know, Canada, which is freezing cold and they have, they can't go to outdoor tracks for most of the year is that they'll sometimes do their top speed work by coming off the top corner of a bank track and then effectively cheating the cheating the acceleration phase by running downhill for five or 10 meters. Well, how could I take these, these basic ideas here and um, find something that was, I think, a little bit safer and, uh, you know, more effective really. And that was, that was the slingshot or the human cannon speed cannon. And we just could get guys to top speed in 15 meters. And I verified this. So I put them on timing gates and everything. And we never run faster than, we would run on the flat, but we can get to top speed faster. And as a result, we can spend more of our total training volume and time on the qualities that we want to spend. So say if you took a traditional max velocity session in that session, let's say you sprint 300 meters. Well, over the course of those 300 meters, you've probably only seen uh, somewhere between 50 and 60 meters at top speed. Well, if I do uh, the slingshot session, and I do those same 300 meters, I might see as much as 150 meters or maybe even more exposure to top speed. So it can really shift the ratio towards what you really want to focus on uh, by skipping the acceleration phase. Fantastic. Good explanation. You haven't lost your marbles then. <laughs> 
it's a fine line between genius and insanity, but you're still on the safe side. <laughs> well, Mike, it's been absolutely fantastic hearing how you implement all these different uh, kind of thoughts and processes and methods. I know there's a, a whole load of gold there, and I personally have taken a lot of notes, and it's made a lot of sense to me and, and some of the way that I coach. And I think you've, you've clarified a lot of things and perhaps um, a fair bit of confusion that people might have about how to integrate these things. So massively useful hour. And, and thanks so much for your time. It's been really, really detailed and, and informative. So thank you. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, there's a number of simple things you can do to help support the podcast. First, hit subscribe on your chosen podcast player so you're kept up to date with the latest episode releases. Second, you can leave us a review to help us reach more coaches and parents like yourself. Third, you can send this episode on to a coach or friend to help spread the word. And then fourth, you can find us on social media.